Father, indeed, a strange way to save the world. Looking back now, we understand more fully why it happened this way. But I imagine what it would have been like to be Joseph and Mary making their way to Bethlehem. All the while knowing the baby that was in Mary's womb was special. God with us. And then as the angels would declare, the one who would bring peace on all on whom his favor rested. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. As we look into your word today, to learn even more deeply what it means, I pray that you'd open our hearts to hear from you, God. Speak. Your children are listening. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I release the kids through grade four off to the classes that are ready for them. And we're going to look at this idea of peace. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we do this today when 78 years ago today, this country wasn't thinking about peace very much. It was thinking about war. Because 78 years ago yesterday, Pearl Harbor was attacked. And so we, we think of where we were 78 years ago. A longing for peace, but an understanding in some ways that war was going to be necessary in order for peace to come. I'm a product of the 70s in some ways, and growing up in the late 60s and 70s, I can remember lots of conversation about peace. Maybe you can as well, if you lived during that time. We had symbols for peace. That used to mean peace, not two. And, uh, you know, and, and we had all these things because there was a longing for there to be peace because the world was at such a chaotic state at that point. The war in Vietnam and so many other things that were going on. And it's interesting to me because in many ways we seem to be in, in even more of a chaotic state right now. And yet I really don't hear many people talking about peace. I, you know, it's not like it was. There's not this cry for peace. There's this longing, I suppose, maybe a desire for there to be peace, but there's not a, a movement toward peace. So many of the songs of the day were, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me, and, and all of these different things looking for peace to come into the world. And I wonder if it isn't somewhat possible that maybe we've gotten to a point where we just have resigned ourselves to the fact that there won't be peace in this world. That's tad on the cynical side, isn't it? What if, what if this baby born in the manger could truly bring peace? Who would that be like? What would that look like? Today, as we look at this passage that was acted out for us, this passage from Isaiah, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll leave here seeing peace maybe a little bit differently and understanding how we can be used by God 
to bring his peace into this world. So our theme for the Advent season this year is rejoice, and today we're looking at rejoicing because the appearing of Jesus brings peace, and we're looking at how that means he destroys the work of the devil. What does it mean that he destroys the work of the devil? The second Advent candle reminds us of the peace with God that's found only in Jesus. It signifies the peace that the devil's work can be destroyed in each person's life and also looks forward to the peaceful reign of Messiah over his kingdom. As we look at this today, I, I want to look at it a little bit differently, kind of like we did last week, and so your notes aren't going to really help you as much today as you may think they could. Um, but I want to take a look at this past, present, and future piece again. And so through the message, we're going to be spending some time looking at the past, then we're going to look at the present, then we're going to look at the future. Just like we did last week as we looked at hope, I want to do that this week too, looking at peace, and then next week with joy, and the week after with love, and understanding and, and realizing that, listen, the amazing thing about God one of the amazing things, the amazing thing, what does that mean, right? One of the amazing things about God is that he's revealed himself to us in scripture. He's given us his word. He's given us an ability for us to know who he is. And, and, and it's so amazing to realize that. And one of the things that happens as we look at this, we can get so used to seeing this and, and seeing it through the lens of where we are that if we're not careful, we don't understand Scripture correctly. I understand that one of the, one of the guiding principles of, of good hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is the science and art of studying the Bible, and one of, the, one of the important principles of that is that there's one interpretation of Scripture, and in order to get at the real interpretation of Scripture, we need to understand who it was written to, when it was written, and what it was written for. And as we do that, then we're able to find the, the true interpretation of Scripture. And the reason that's so important is because we want Scripture to be able to teach us. And, and if we do that, then we can take that scripture and we can take, because of that interpretation, and apply it to our lives. And it's an accurate application. Now, application changes for each person and, and each period in time, but the interpretation of scripture doesn't. It's living and active. And so taking the text, learning what it means, and applying it to our lives is what's called exegesis. It's this idea of taking the meaning from Scripture so that we know what it means. Now, eisegesis is taking, and this can happen very easily in a soundbite society. We live in a, a society where we like small little words and, and small phrases, and we don't like to think necessarily as big. And so what can happen is we can get a really good quote, and then we put it into Scripture so that Scripture can mean what we want it to mean. That's called eisegesis. That's called putting our meaning into Scripture. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because if we're going to accurately understand what God is teaching us about who he is, his nature, his character, and his, his person, we have to find the interpretation of scripture. And so this passage, Isaiah in chapter nine, is one that we know really well, all right? Handel has seen to that. 
poor, unto us a child is born. Government shall be upon his shoulder. Right, yeah, okay, that's great. It's the original ho-ho-ho-ho song. So anyway, as, as you think about that and you look at that, if we're not careful, we can skip over what it means in finding what we want it to mean. So today we're going to look past, present, and future. And to do that, and as we continue to do it, I want to talk to you about prophetic telescoping. Now, how many of you have ever heard of prophetic telescoping? Okay, how many of you are thinking maybe I'm going to start talking about heresy? Okay, so prophetic telescoping, I have an image here that will help us with that. This prophetic telescoping helps us to understand prophecy in Scripture. Because sometimes we can look at it and we can can get confused by what is it that God's trying to say. And prophetic telescoping helps us, it's an interpretive process which helps us understand what God is saying. So in this illustration that we have here, we can think of this, this shepherd man, and I'm going to move away from the TV to the screen to my right so that, you know, those people who aren't close enough to see the screen can do it. So this man, we're going to say he's Isaiah for the sake of argument today. And so this is Isaiah. And Isaiah is being given a prophecy, and he's looking into the future. And he's seeing a fulfillment of prophecy because as he speaks prophecy, he knows that God's telling him something that will happen Amen? And so, so Isaiah's looking forward, and he's seeing the fulfillment. What he doesn't know is there's this huge time gap that, that takes place in some of the things that he's prophesying. And so sometimes maybe you've been in a mountain range or maybe you've seen a a landscape or something and it looks like something's a lot closer than it is and it looks like two things are right next to each other when actually they're much farther apart. So that's what's happening here. So Isaiah is looking and it's particularly interesting for us at, at the Advent season because the Advent and the Advent wreath helps us consider the appearing of Christ, the appearing of Jesus. And we understand and know now because of where we are in this time gap that there are actually two advents, two appearings of Jesus. And and so Isaiah would not have understood that when he was speaking, and the people probably didn't either, most of them, from what we can tell in Scripture. And so there's the first fulfilling at the first advent, so the hope is building the expectation, the anticipation is building until Jesus is born. And now the anticipation's building again until he comes the second time. And the beautiful thing for us in this time gap is that if there weren't that time gap between the first appearing and the second appearing of Christ, we would have no hope. See, there, there would be no hope for us. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. And apart from this time gap, there's no hope for us. Because prior to that, for a Gentile to, to come into a saving relationship with God was extremely difficult. But after this, because of the grace of Jesus, we have great opportunity. It's been opened to us. So we're anticipating, and we light the candles, anticipating the hope last week that will come at the second appearing. We light the candle anticipating the appearing of Jesus that will bring true peace, a different, even more fuller peace than came in the first appearing. So that helps us understand as we begin to look at this idea of past, 
present, and future. So past, what that means is the promises that are given by God are rooted in the past. They're rooted in his word given and expressed to us. So let's take a look at, at Isaiah chapter 9. I'll do some, some exegetical work here, okay? I'm trying to use a lot of big words today because I want to sound important. Uh, yeah. No, I'm using big words and trying to explain them to you because this is so important for us. It is. And, and more and more and more today, we're being told that this is an old book that doesn't matter. And I absolutely love when I see how many of you have one of these things open on your lap. Because it's amazing, and I understand. I, I use mine electronically as well. But to really dig in to know what it means, that's what I long for us to be able to do well here. So Isaiah chapter 9, and we step into the middle of this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So we step into this, and, and it's important to understand, as I said, who was this written to, why was it written, when was it written, and what does that all mean? And as we do the work and get in here and look at this, we see that this is a very chaotic time for the people of Israel. Isaiah 7 through 14, or 7 through uh, 9, 9 deal with a, a really important period of time. It's a period of about three years in the reign of Ahaz as the king of Judah. And it's a very, very chaotic time in the history of Judah and Israel. Isaiah 6, you maybe, maybe remember, is when Isaiah starts out by saying, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And, and so in Isaiah 6, we realize Isaiah's saying, King Uzziah has died. Now that's a big deal. It may not be a big deal for us because we probably don't really realize who King Uzziah is. But King Uzziah was a very, very good and powerful king. And because of that, as he was reigning over Judah at that time, there, there was peace. And a lot of the country, countries wouldn't attack Judah at that point in time because of how strong of a king Uzziah was. And for a while, Uzziah's son Jotham sat on the throne with him because Uzziah made a mistake towards the end of his life. Went into the temple and did something only a priest was supposed to do. And so he was separated as a leper from the temple for the rest of his reign and the rest of his life. Sad thing, really. Make sure you finish well. And after Jotham came Ahaz. And Ahaz, well, let me let Scripture tell you about Ahaz. Second Kings chapter 16. In the 16th year, or 17th year of Pekah, son of Romalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He was king of Judah. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, the ten tribes to the north, which were tribes that walked away from God. 
he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Did you catch that? He he burned his son as an offering. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under, under every green tree. Now I'll encourage you to read the rest of that. 2 Kings 16, if you want to go, 2 Chronicles 28 talks about it as well. This man Ahaz, who took the throne from Jotham, who was a wonderful king, the son of Uzziah, came in and he was a fool. He was a fool. He was a king over the nation of Judah, He was a king who sat in Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye. And he he reigned there and didn't acknowledge God at all. So much so that he offered his son on the altar and burned him alive. And so when it came time, at this point in time, there's all these conflicts going on now because Ahaz has lost the strength that belonged to Israel and to Judah. And so there's all this conflict going on. And there's this conflict going for the, for the uh, northern tribes, the northern territory. Now the northern territory at this point in time, we're at about 732 BC, has about 10 years left before it's overthrown by the Assyrians. And so what's happening is Syria and some other nations are coming, and they're coming against the northern kingdom, and there is great fear. As Isaiah writes, chapter 9, there's a great fear that the throne of David will be lost. That this fool, Ahaz, that has been been given the throne is going to lose that throne, and that Judah will be overthrown and Jerusalem will be lost. And so Ahaz, being uh, who he is, decides that the best, things to, the best thing to do is to go make a deal with Assyria. So he goes to Assyria and makes a deal with them and seeks counsel with them. And they come and take over the ten northern tribes and then come and attack against him. Now that hasn't happened yet, but that's setting the stage for where we are. So in the midst of this, we see Isaiah prophesying. So he's prophesying, and, and in the beginning of chapter 9, it says, uh, it talks about the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, and later time, the glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, the only place we see that in Scripture. And then he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep dark, darkness, on them has light shone. Now we read that and we get excited because we know what that means. We, we've, we've seen the fulfillment of that prophecy, right? As, as it's talked about in Matthew chapter four, that Jesus is the light that's come on the land of the Galilees. But at the time this was written, it's written really to bring comfort to these people. To let them know that even though all appearances are that the throne of David is in peril, God is in the midst of it. That there will be a child born, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Now we look at this and it's really hard for us, again, 
to not see Jesus all over the place in here. Okay, because that's, that's where we are, and it's beautiful. That's what's so amazing is as this thread of redemption continues to unfold before us that starts in the garden, okay, realizing that when God created Adam and Eve, and, and he made them for this unbelievable peace with him, shalom. See, this word peace for us is so hard for us to understand, but there's this unbelievable truth of the fullness of what this is, and we really don't get a picture of it anywhere else in, in the history of mankind other than for that moment in the garden. As, as God takes the dust of the earth and forms Adam, puts breath in him, takes a rib, makes Eve, and Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day, and, and they're there together in perfect shalom. There's no sin in the world at all. No, no hardship, no pain, no death, no sorrow. There's no sin, there's no enmity between God and mankind. It's this perfect, peaceful relationship that we've been designed to have with God. And then the fruit is taken. And that peace is severed. The peace is destroyed and the enmity that comes because of our sin, it just totally takes us away from the peace and the shalom that God has designed for us to have with him. But in that, God has a thread of redemption that roams all through scripture. And it wasn't like the fruit was eaten and he goes, oh now, what are we gonna do now? This was in God's plan to begin with. This amazing plan that he had. And as he walks this plan through Adam, through Noah, through Moses, through David, through Abraham, and David's given this promise there will always be a king on his throne. And that this king will be a king of peace. And so as the nation of Israel reads this from Isaiah, this wonderful counselor, a wonder of a counselor is what that literally means. And he's speaking at a time when Ahaz has looked at anybody other than God for counsel. He's saying there will be one on the throne who is a wonder of a counselor, a mighty God. And we look at this and we say, well, this is clearly talking about Jesus. But at that time, 700 years before Jesus was born, it wasn't unusual for kings to be thought of as gods, little G gods. Some of them thought of themselves as big G gods. But as we look at that, and this, this everlasting father, and that can mess us up a little bit, because it's like, what does that mean? And again, if we look at, at the time that this was written, Isaiah 22 is a perfect place for this. It's talking about Eliakim, who's taken in for Shebna, who was another crazy guy. You can read it later. And so Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with a robe and bind your sash on him and commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So it wasn't unusual at this point in time for for the ruler, for the one who's given authority to be thought of as a father because it had the idea of protection and provision. So so the king was was given the, the, uh, the responsibility to protect and to provide. And in that way, he was considered a father and a prince of peace, which is what they would have longed for. 
And he says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love this. This zeal is his passionate commitment. It's his, when it talks about the zeal of the Lord, it's talking about his like overwhelming desire and, and even with a, a righteous jealousness to have this happen. This zeal, this is like he is driven to make this happen. And, and it's interesting, the name of the Lord that's used here, the Lord of hosts, which is, you know, Jehovah Sabaoth, it's God of angel armies is what we, we like to refer to that. So the zeal of the God of angel armies is going to do this. He is going to see to it that this happens. 2 Samuel 7, 16. God promises David, your house and your kingdom shall be made uh, sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So Isaiah is telling them, listen, there is a child who will be born and light will come to the land of the Gentiles. That's the past. Now we step into the present. And what does that look like? And the present, we, we take a look at this idea of, of Mary and Joseph seeing the baby come and realizing the promises are being fulfilled. You think of, of Mary being told that, that this, this son in, in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 1, he will be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of God forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Did you follow along here in Isaiah as I read that? See, and so as, as this baby is shaped and formed and, and growing inside of Mary's womb, he is this promised child. And so... Mary takes hold of that. And, and, and Joseph was told that you would, he would be known as Emmanuel, as God with us. And now we look back and we see wonderful counselor and we see Jesus. We see that he is a wonderful counselor. He's the most amazing counselor for your life. Have you found that to be true? Isaiah 28, 29 says, this also comes from the God of angel armies. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Have you found that to be true in your life? You know, I remember a song by Casting Crowns a few years ago. It said, what if the family turned to Jesus and stopped asking Oprah what to do? Remember that? Right, and where do you go for counsel? Who do you turn to? Where do you go to for your guiding and for your leading? Because listen, this is a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. And again, that can cause us all sorts of angst because it's like, wait, God's the Father. He's the Son. How does this all work out? I think one of the most beautiful verses that help us understand how Jesus is the Father, when we think of this idea of protection and, and, and provision and, and is is everlasting Father. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, it's this idea that Jesus longs to be a father. He longs to give protection and provision to, to each one of us. But listen, so many times like the Israelites, we're not willing and we crawl out from under that protection and that provision and we miss what it means for him to be the one who provides and, and cares for us. And finally, this Prince of Peace. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he spoke to his disciples and he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Oh man, isn't this amazing? Peace I give you. Imagine being there with the disciples on that night and hearing Jesus say this more than likely Shalom, I give you. My shalom. It's the ache inside of all of us. The ache inside of all of us goes back to the garden. For what we were designed and created for, this intimate, peace-filled, overwhelming sense of joy in the presence of God. It's the ache of our life. It's the ache of our heart. It's what we were designed and made for, and it's what we long for. And Jesus says, I give that to you. That kind of peace. I like to watch old westerns. Anybody else? I promise this will tie in. Sometimes in the westerns, right? All right, pilgrim. Time to make your peace with God. Right? Make your peace with God. If you knew that your end was coming tomorrow, how diligent would you be working to make your peace with God? But the truth is, you can't make peace with God. Not possible. You can't. Only God can make peace with you. You've set yourself up as his enemy. You've chosen things in your life that are specifically opposed to him. As a matter of fact, just about all you do is opposed to him in your own power. See, and what that is, is it's a rejection of his authority. It's standing in, in autonomy and saying, God, I can do what I want and it's your job to forgive me. That sounds terrible when you say it out loud, but have you ever thought that? Like in the deep parts of your heart? And see what I love about this verse. In verse 7, it says this. It says, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, as we're in this in-between period between these two mountain peaks, I don't know about you, but I often think, what would it be like if Jesus was in control of the government of the United States? Who? I'd vote for him. 
what would it be like if Jesus was, was ruling over the government of the United States? What would it be like if Jesus was ruling over the government of my life? What would it be like if Jesus was ruling over the government of all of our lives? See, for Jesus to reign over the government of the United States, he needs to reign over our lives. And what's so amazing about this verse, I don't know if you catch it there, but it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You see, here's the thing. We long for peace with God, but we're not all that willing to let him have the government of our lives. So we want the peace without the governance. And it's not possible, because there is no peace outside of the governance of God. There's no peace outside his reign in your life. Listen, the places where you decide to step out from under his protection, from under his provision, where you step out in your autonomy to make your decisions, when you step out, you're stepping out of his peace. See, as you, as you keep yourself in his reign, you keep yourself in his peace. And it's this peace that he longs to bring into your life. That is shalom. In your life, in your relationship with him. And as you continue, maybe you've discovered this to be true, as you continue to take those places that reject him and that refuse him and that those places where you, as you remove those from your life and you find yourself resting under his reign, you find the peace and you go, this is what I was made for. the next generation behind us. It has been discovered they are the most anxious generation to ever live. And of course, of course, think about it. Remember the the verse I read to you? He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations. How are we offering up our kids to this nation, to this culture? Listen, we can't expect to send our kids into a culture that teaches them that they can't mention the name of God. We can't, we can't send our kids into a culture that tells them that this isn't truth, that truth is whatever you decide it should be. We don't, can't send our kids into a culture that tells them they can, there's no place to trust and there's nothing you can put your trust in and expect them to experience peace. Well, what do you have wrapped up under your Christmas tree for your kids and your grandkids, for your nieces? And what do you have wrapped up under there? Is it, is it something that, that lets them know the peace of God that comes only through Jesus? Or have you wrapped up something that's despicable, that's detestable to God? See, we live in a day and age where we take these things that are despicable Spickable, and we call them entertainment. And, and we involve our kids and our grandkids in that. And listen, it's, it's slipping away from us. 
this generation, it has been, it's, if they walk away, they will not walk back. And this peace with God, each, each one of us longs for it. We've each been designed for it. It's in us. And it's only available as we remain under his governance in our life. And listen, as we take hold of that peace, it makes a difference in who we are. And as it makes a difference in who we are, it impacts how we, uh, how we impact others. As we take his peace of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and take it into his world. And listen, we live where this is partially fulfilled right now. But that second mountain tells us that this will be fulfilled completely. The king will sit on his throne. And the king will return. And I tell you, as you read Ezekiel 36 and 37, as you read Zechariah 14, as you read Jeremiah 23 and 33, as you read Daniel, as you read Revelation, and you see, oh my goodness, Lord, this seems so close. And I wonder if we're not like that, that, very, that very few years right before that time when Jesus was born where everybody's going, Lord, now is it now? Now, we need you now. Come now. <laughs> and, and so are we crying out, Lord, come now but realizing that as soon as he comes, everybody who doesn't know him is cast away from him forever. But the king is coming. And he's coming soon. And I don't know about you, but I've started getting up every morning going, is today the day? And sometimes I go, oh, shoot, still here. And we live in that tension, don't we? Oh, God for your peace, I thank you. Lord, you know I've got like an hour's more I'd love to say, but I'm gonna trust you with what I said. I trust that they were your words. You know each person in this room, God. If there's anyone in this room who thinks that they have peace, but they don't. Holy Spirit, touch their heart. If that's you, friend, give your heart to the Lord. Just say, God, forgive me. Forgive me and take my life of sin and exchange it for your life of righteousness. I choose to live for you. I repent of my autonomy and I place myself under your governance. I want your peace. Maybe you've had that in your life and you've walked away from it. Maybe there's something that's caused you to believe that, that Jesus can't be trusted could I tell you that the one who's caused you to believe Jesus can't be trusted is Satan? And you pray against him and you say, get out of here, Satan, because I trust Jesus. And I bring in his peace back into my life. God, for any of the things we have in our lives that are detestable to you, please show us what those are. Put your finger on them, that we could remove them. God, for our kids and our grandkids, our nieces, our nephews, help us pour into them. Help them see in us your peace and, and help us make wise choices, God. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.